Hello, you're listening to Sarah McCoy, and this is Chapter 9 of the Book of Hebrews, a new weekly podcast series. I've been a Bible teacher at Owasso First Assembly in Owasso, Oklahoma for over 40 years, and I love the way God's Word shows itself practical to today, time after time. Chapter 9's theme continues the message from Chapter 8 that Jesus is the author of a better covenant. Where is the Ark of the Covenant now? Some say it's at Mount Nebo. That's 29 miles southeast of Jerusalem near the east bank of the Jordan, buried in a cave, perhaps by Jeremiah. Some say it's in Aksum, Ethiopia, at the Chapel of the Tablet at the Church of Our Lady Mary of Zion. Some say it's in southern Africa, in a deep cave in the Dumgi Mountains. Some say it's in France at a cathedral, and some even say that it's at the Hill of Terra in Ireland. It was last mentioned in Second Chronicles 35, chapter 3, when Josiah returned the ark to the temple. In 1981, a movie by Steven Spielberg came out starring Harrison Ford called Raiders of the Lost Ark, and it was all about a globe-trotting archaeologist who was trying to recover the Ark of the Covenant before the Nazis, who were trying to get it in 1936 so it would help them in their battle against the world. Indiana Jones ends up finding the Ark underground near Cairo, Egypt, but he's interrupted by the Nazis. Did you see that movie? Do you remember the dramatic scene at the end where the Nazis finally decide to take the cover off of the ark, the mercy seat, the gold lid, and nothing happens at first, but then spirits come out of the ark and all of the people are struck dead except for Harrison Ford and his colleague Marion Ravenwood because they didn't look. That was just a myth. But the real thing is talked about in all of its holiness in Exodus chapter 25. So let's do just a little bit of background on this Ark of the Covenant, and then we'll get into what Hebrews chapter 9 has to say about that symbol of the first covenant and how it compares to the new covenant or testament that we have now. Exodus 25, 10 to 16. Have them build a chest of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out, and make a gold molding around it. Cast four rings for it and fasten them to its four feet with two rings on one side and two rings on the other. Then make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. So this box was four feet by about two and a half feet by about two and a half feet. We continue in verse 14. Insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the chest to carry it. The poles are to remain in the rings of this ark. They are not to be removed. Then put in the ark of the testimony, which I will give you. So this was a wood box covered in gold that had a solid gold lid, and it couldn't be touched It was not to be handled lightly, and so the priests that would carry it from location to location would put wooden poles covered with gold through the rings on the sides and then haul it on their shoulders. Inside this Ark of the Covenant 
were placed the two tablets of stone that the Lord had written on on Mount Sinai that had the Ten Commandments for Moses. Exodus 16, 33 and 34, So Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it. Maybe you recall that the people were being fed by God each day while they were in the wilderness those 40 years. They would get up in the morning and with the dew, there was something on the ground that looked kind of like a white, thin wafer, and it was nutritious. They ate it like bread. Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it, then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna in front of the testimony that it might be kept. Then we come to Leviticus 17.10, and we also read, The Lord said to Moses, Put back Aaron's staff in front of the testimony to be kept as a sign to the rebellious. This will be an end to their grumbling against me so that they will not die. Moses did just as the Lord commanded him. So the point is, there were three things that were kept inside the ark. The two stone tablets with the Ten Commandments on them, and we remember that Jesus is the Word made flesh, so that was their Word of God on stone, and then this jar of manna, and we remember that Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And he said, take eat, this is my body, which was given for you. And then Aaron's staff that budded, there was a time when some of the elders of Israel were angry about the authority that Moses and Aaron had, and they challenged them. And the Lord said, you tell each of the leaders of the tribes of Israel to take a shepherd's staff and lay it out, all 12 there, including Aaron, and leave it overnight. And when you get up in the morning, I'll show you who's the real authority. And when they got up in the morning, all of the staffs looked the same except for Aaron's. That piece of dead wood had developed branches and it had leaves and buds and flowers and almonds. And so it was a sign of priestly authority. Those three things foreshadowed Christ. Then we read in Leviticus 16 how that Ark of the Covenant or Ark of the Testament was to be used in worship. Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household, and he is to slaughter the bull for his own offering. He is to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and take them behind the curtain. He's talking there about the curtain that divided the holy place from the holy of holies in the tent tabernacle in the wilderness. He is to put the incense on the fire before the Lord, and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the testimony so that he will not die. He is to take some of the bull's blood and with his finger sprinkle it on the front of the atonement cover. Then he shall sprinkle some of it with his finger seven times before the atonement cover. He shall then 
slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. So that's a look at the symbol of the Old Testament or Old Covenant, the Ark, and also the way in which it was incorporated into this yearly ritual of worship. Now we get to Hebrews chapter 9, which intends to make the point that Jesus is the author of a better covenant, and we're ready for verse 1. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up in its first room where the lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Those were the three things I just told you about. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the atonement cover, but we cannot discuss these things in detail now. So he is referring to the two angel figures that were leaning over the gold lid, the mercy seat, as they were looking down on it as they were worshiping. Verse 6, When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry, but only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. And we just read the regulations for that in Leviticus 16. Continuing on with verse 8, the Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper they are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. So he's making the point that all of those regulations that were specified in the Old Testament were symbolic. We go on to verse 11. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that already are here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. And then this wonderful verse 14, How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit 
offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Praise the Lord. Verse 16, in the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it. Because a will is in force only when someone has died, it never takes effect while the one who made it is living. That is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. So this is a testament. You know that often when a person is planning for their death someday, they will ask a lawyer to write up a last will and testament. So this covenant that they are making with the people that are their friends or their family members goes into effect when they die. In the first covenant with Moses, went into effect by the death of goats and bulls. And the second covenant also then comes into effect through the death of Christ. We go on, verse 19, when Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. How did the writer of Hebrews know that? Well, he was referring to Exodus 24, 7 and 8, where it says, Then he, meaning Moses, took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Which, of course, was not true. They did not do what the Lord had said. They certainly sinned. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. In other words, it was a testament or a will that came with an inheritance and it was ratified by blood. So we continue in Hebrews 9 verse 21. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now, that is such an important statement. It's a central tenet of the Christian religion that there can be no forgiveness for sin without the shedding of blood. We continue then, verse 23, It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world, but now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people 
and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Praise the Lord. So the point of this chapter 9, Jesus is the author of a better covenant, is that Jesus' blood is enough to cover whatever you have done. To continue to feel guilty for a sin you've repented of is really an act of faithlessness. Are you really saying that God's not as big as your sin? That the sacrifice he provided is not enough? That somehow he's incompetent to wash you? Jesus is the author of a better covenant. He's the high priest, but he's also the sacrifice. And so when he stands before God as our mediator, he has in his hands an offering of his own life, his blood and his body. And that is enough to pay the price for any and everything you have ever done if you will call on his name and come to him and repent. Jesus is the author of a better covenant. Have you accepted his offer? If this podcast has been a blessing to you, please pass along.